morning, church. So good to be with you this morning. I'm really delighted to, um, to be here and be able to share this really fantastic uh, portion of God's Word in Ephesians. If you would turn your Bible open to Ephesians chapter 2. If you have not been with us through the series, we're in the book of Ephesians. We're in the latter half of chapter 2. I invite you to go online, catch some of the messages there to keep up to speed and get the context of all we're talking about. And this particular passage in Ephesians 2, the second half, uh, before we jump in, I, want, I need to test your memory a bit. So I want you to think of the most memorable thing that happened to you this last year. Something you think, oh, that's going to stick with me probably for the rest of my life. It's something that you remember that happened to you or you that sticks in your brain this last year. And I need you to share it with somebody around you. Okay, so don't, not your spouse or the person sitting right next to you, but just share it. Something happened to you. Okay, part of us, what we do here at church is do community. So, need somebody, maybe it's somebody new, turn around and say, hey, um, this is what happened to me this, this last year. There's something that sticks with me. Go ahead, go. Interaction part. I know, it might be odd and awkward. Go ahead. Carl, somebody new right behind you, right, right there. That's good. No cheating, not doing it with your spouse. Man, I, I really want to hear some of those stories. It's, it looks like uh, your faces, some of them are really expressive as you're sharing it. So I'm going to, afterwards, if some of you would come up and tell me your story, I would really love that. Now, hold those memories just for a moment. Let me invite you after the service, if you didn't finish your conversation, to finish it. Let them know the whole story of why it was significant. Um, love that we could break out into just conversation that way. That's, that's church, so that's good and healthy. I want to give you the context of what happens before I read the text. So, um, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, gathered group of believers. And this particular group of believers came from a lot of different backgrounds, different cultures and family of origins, different religions and ethnicities different languages. They were in this central city in Asia Minor, Ephesus, and this church, and all of them, every person struggled with division. Every one of them had wrestled with all that division brings. Every one of them had been hostile to God. Think about that for a moment, because Scripture is very clear that every person at one point in their life was not just separated from God, but hostile toward him. And in our hearts, we wrestle with that hostility. And in and of ourselves, that chasm of broken relationship would always exist. Nothing we could do to bridge that. So these people were wrestling. Some of them who had come to place their faith in Jesus Christ experienced forgiveness because they had brought their hostility to God honestly and said, that's me. I have wrestled with hostility, and I need your forgiveness. And experienced what God did to our enmity, our wrestling and hostility against God. Those people had experienced healing, but they had experienced a past, too. And when they did, they started experiencing what God wanted to do. That is, not just heal the vertical, 
but heal what happens when I experience hostility toward God, a lack of peace toward God. It leaks out on all my other relationships, and it infests my marriage and my neighborhood and my place of work and school and all the other relationships that I might form. They struggle with division, and these people had divisions of race and culture, ethnicity, economic standing, citizenship, a long list of things that had divided them. And even people that went to the same church were divided. Can you imagine that? Things that might separate you from someone here at Bridges. And God was going to speak into that to help them be a different kind of people than what other people were experiencing in their faith communities. He was going to reach across these lines. And and one of the great divisions in this church in Ephesus was between people who had a cultural and ethnic heritage as Jews, who were, in the Old Testament, we're told, were chosen to be a people of God to express the love of God to the world. And they saw themselves as separate and superior because of that choosing of God. And not only that, but it divided them relationally from people, all those people who were non-Jewish. In fact, that history of antagonism was long and complex. It had all kinds of layers. But many of you are familiar with some of your ancient history where there was suppression and injustice and even violence between the races. And God was going to do something powerful to bring healing and wholeness and even oneness to all those people who would experience differences. Because in his agenda, God's great plan, as we're told in the first couple chapters of Ephesians, God's design was to make all of these different people from all kinds of different backgrounds to sing the same song together. A song that proclaims the glory of God. Of God. Um, I was reminded by a friend of mine this week of a YouTube that expresses this, where uh, this guy, really talented, creative guy, has taken people and they will um, record this song by themselves in their living room or bathroom or backyard and then send it in. And then this guy puts it all together and helps us see the picture of what God's about. I just wanted to share this quick video with you so you see the picture. 2,292 singers from 80 countries singing together one song. And that's minor league stuff compared to the work of God, compared to his plan. People from all nations, all ages, all decades, all time, gathered together around the throne of God as one people, not multiple people, multiple ethnicities, cultures. All of them have beauty and design, but all brought together in the plan of God. And that was his design. So how does he pull it off? Ephesians Two, eleven through 22. Read it with me if you would, please. This is the word of God to us this morning. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that is all people who are not the children of God, Jewish, in the flesh, and that's a critical phrase in Sarkin, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision. That's a derogatory term uh, that they... The Jews used to all people outside of their family. By what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh. There's that phrase again that Paul is going to keep using so he sees, you can see it. Uh, 
by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel or the family of God, and strangers to the covenants of promise. This long series in starting the Old Testament of agreements that God made with people so that all the people might come into relationship with him, and he did it through the Jewish people. And you, unless you've got Old Testament Jewish heritage in you, you were a stranger to that. You were outside looking in with no way in. That wasn't part of your family or your ethnicity, right? Or your culture, your background, your religion. Having no hope and without God in the world. That was your place. But now in Christ, and again, that phrase, in Christ, we've already seen is a really significant phrase, right, throughout the book of Ephesians, because of who he is and what he's done. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both, different races, different religions, different backgrounds, heritage, cultures, both one. And is broken down in his flesh. Now, it was in their flesh that they, the Jews, were saying that they were superior. And in the Gentiles' flesh, non-Jewish flesh, that felt like they had fallen short. But in the flesh of the living Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, who had his flesh torn apart on a cross, who shed his blood and died for us, so that we might experience this oneness in his flesh broken down, the dividing wall of hostility. And by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, all that ceremonial law that divided them and made them different, that he might create in himself one new man, generic term, ladies, including you, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. With the hostile act of the cross, there's no more hostile act than the killing of the Son of God in such a brutal fashion. Through that hostility, he conquered all the hostility of broken relationship, all the things that divide us that seek to ruin our relationship between God and between each other. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers. Return, take a second and turn to the person next to you and say, you're not a stranger and you're not strange. No. You're no longer that. And aliens... But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. All of that throughout history, God was working, built on that. And most significantly, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone that bore the load and made everything true and right. The cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place 
for God by the Spirit, a place where God resides and is present and active in your neighborhood and at work and at school and every place you find yourself and that proclaims the glory of God. That's his great plan for you. As you know, many of you know, my mom has Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's is a pretty vicious, hard disease to watch in the life of someone you love. Because it steals your memory, the things you remember. Um, I'm not looking for pity, really, because my family, we feel like we're pretty blessed. My mom's um, descent has been slow. She still remembers our faces. She still knows Jesus and loves him and still has good days. I have a really, um, a family that I love back in Michigan when I spent time doing ministry there. And um, this lady was brilliant. She had her PhD and she had, she had been an educator all her life. And she turned 60 and in one month, she lost all of her memory. And one month from the progression, I mean, the progression of the disease, when it first hit her, she could no longer remember any family member's face. And she lost every capacity she once had of her brilliance. And, you know, it was, um, I just remember going to the hospital and going to the convalescent, you know, hospital and just how hard that was for the family, for her husband of over 30 years, for everyone, and for herself, just seeing that. But that's not the worst of things that could happen to a person. The worst of things that can happen to a person is that we would lose our spiritual memory, that we would become divided between ourselves and God and others because even though our mind had the capacity, we did not exercise our memory. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we find the only imperative in the first half of this book, the only imperative statement where God says, do this. If you, if you don't do it, just do this one thing. And it happens here, repeated again for us twice. It's the imperative to remember. These things, you've got to remember if you're going to be a people that God has called you to be. First, remember our past. There's certain things that stick in my mind, like just right there. And I'm really good at dismissing all the bad stuff and living, you know, like removed from that. But there's certain great events that stick in my mind. I, I can remember, um, yeah, my first base hit when I was playing baseball. I can remember... Um, I can remember my first date, which actually was a train wreck, but I still remember it. I, I can remember the first time that I saw my wife, Sue, at her house. Um, I lived there, actually, for a season before she came home from college. I can remember seeing her. I, I can remember details of my wedding pretty good. I mean, she remembers a lot more, but I can remember details of my wedding, you know, that day. There are things that I can still remember that are really great memories, And I'm sure that you've got a whole bunch of them, right? Things that we recall. But the things that have been hurtful and wounding and that I struggle with, those things I I try to bury and not remember. Here in the first part of the second half of Ephesians 2, 
Paul says, you need to remember something that's hard to remember. You probably have placed it you know, in your past and in your collective memory, try to dismiss it. You probably aren't thinking it like you should think about it. So let me remind you, do not lose sight of this. You were once a wreck. You were at odds, not just like disagreeing with God, you were hostile toward him. And you didn't have any place in the family. You were you were lost, man. You were, you were so away from him. You were a foreigner. You were an alien. That, I mean, that actually speaks, I know, to a lot of us because many of you have, a, have entered into the U.S. from a different culture and a different place, and you felt the loneliness of it and the struggle of it. And, the, you know, what, what in the world are these people doing you know, with that custom? And how do I speak the language? You were that distant in your relationship with God. That's, that's what the scripture is saying. And in that place, in that place of distance, God did something. You didn't do it. God did it. He invited you. He invited you close. But you have to remember your past. You have to remember what he did for you. The Bible says that at one point, every one of us is separated from God. And we are sin built an unscalable wall between ourselves and God, an unbridgeable chasm, nothing we could do. And only by the blood of Jesus Christ and what he did to die on a cross could things change. That was your place, and you have to remember that. You were a stranger to promise you had no hope. I um, really appreciate my conversations that I have with my friend Srikanth, who leads our Indian fellowship, and um, he often reminds me that some of his best friends have lifelong Hinduism in their background as part of their world system. You know, they have this desire to do good things, so their, their good stuff outweighs their bad stuff, and somehow they can evolve to the next step in the evolutionary spiritual ladder. That way of living doesn't have a whole lot of hope. In fact, most spiritual religious systems are based on that. And they have no hope. And that's Paul's point here. You were once at a place that had no hope. But you're no longer there. Praise God for that. You, you are no longer in that place. Because God has taken you from the place where you were to a place where you are today. Where you live today in Christ. You are no longer a spiritual orphan in a foreign land. God has brought you home. Remember your past. Now, men and women, please listen. Remember where he's brought you to. Remember right now our place. Paul puts it this way. You were once far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were apart from God, living at this huge distance from him, needing connection, hungering for it. And astonishingly, God did something amazing. I remember um, sitting in the balcony when I was growing up at my church. And uh, that's why I love the balcony people. And I, I was sitting up there, and um, I was in seventh grade. And I had my eye on this really cute girl. And, um, and she came to church that night. We were at a night service. And I saw her make eye contact. And she came up and sat by me. 
I don't know what she was thinking, but she sat by me. Now, I discovered later on that actually women have all this planned out. We're just, as men, just clueless. We don't know what we're doing, right? They have it all under control and planned out. And so I'm sitting there, and my heart starts to beat. You know, I'm starting to sweat a little bit, and she kind of puts her hand out there. I thought, oh, what do I do? (laughs) And I, you know, just kind of grab it, you know, tentatively, and I'm thinking, oh, man, this is great. Now, I have no idea what the pastor said that night. Or what kind of music was going on? All I know is I was holding her hand. And she had drawn close to me. Man, that was good. (laughs) Now, here's the deal. It's better that God, the Lord God of heaven and earth, has drawn close to you. That he would draw you, even though you were an alien and separated from him, that he would say, come here. I want relationship with you. I want to come and be close to you. I want you to come into my place, sit on my couch, and we're just going to hang out. We're going to have relationship. And it's no longer going to be experienced with hostility, but it's going to be filled with intimacy and health and wholeness. You who are far off have been brought near. That's the point. And the point is that it happened significantly. Not just because God liked you or even because he loved you. That was the motivating factor. But because he shed his blood in a violent death. His violence that he experienced brought down the walls of violence that you had against God and others. He brought relationship to you through this violent act of the shedding of his blood. Ray Steadman has said, God is reminding us that when humanity had done its worst, had sunk to its lowest, had vented its anger in the utter wretchedness and violence and the blood of the cross, his love reached down to that very place and utilizing, utilizing that violent act began to redeem, to call back those who are far off and bringing them near in the blood of Christ. And it is that very blood, the blood of Christ Jesus, our Lord, that even though the Jews once had all these advantages that the Gentiles didn't have, he brought all of us close together in him. Ignorant, pagan, darkened, foolish, struggling, and hopeless, all having access to relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and intimacy with him. Because of the blood of Jesus. He's trying to help us see through these words in Ephesians chapter 2. What happened? This event that we celebrate in communion. Now, communion celebrates the love of God poured out. And it doesn't use water. It uses a symbol that reminds us of the blood of Jesus. It reminds us of his sacrifice and the power of what happened on the cross. And when we share it, we share it together, don't we? We don't share it separately. Communion is an act that we do together. And together we remind ourselves that relationship changes between ourselves and God and between ourselves and other people through this violent act, the shedding of his blood, 
the Lord God of heaven and earth, his only beloved son dying on the cross. And because of it, we can have wholeness and nearness and health with him. Remember, Paul says, and remember our peace. You probably saw that word. It sticks out in the passage. It's repeated multiple times. This word peace. Paul says it this way, for he himself is our peace. Paul writes, who made the two one. And Paul starts with this definition of what peace truly is. True peace is oneness. It's not merely like the cessation of hostility. It's like, okay, maybe this is only happens between my wife and I sometimes, but occasionally we might disagree on something. Happens. Because she's perfect, I'm not. Right? And, um, and there might be distinct differences between us. Relationally with a neighbor or with someone at work, you have these divisions that happen. And peace is not just, I'm going to ignore that and get on with it. Peace actually is the healing of it and the bringing of the two one. Peace on superficial terms is unsatisfying. Merely agreeing not to just argue over something and stopping that. That's not what biblical peace is. It's a call to get right. And it happens through Jesus. Because the scripture says he himself is our peace. This is not news to you, but we live in a world that's divided and broken in so many ways. And we experience all these different um, foreign policy agendas to try to fix it. Whether we should be isolationists or globalists or whatever we might be. However, what kind of steps we should take as a nation or as a group of nations to bring unity. We have all these approaches. And they're all actually superficial, doomed to failure. Why? Because true peace is only found in Jesus. That's what it says. He, Jesus himself, is our peace. It's not another strategy or tactic that we take. Jesus is our peace. And when Christ makes peace between individuals or nations, it's permanent and it's satisfying and it's genuine. What Paul is saying is that in order to live at peace, you must have peace. And without peace, without Jesus, there's no peace. There is no peace relationally between you and God or between you and others or corporately between groups. That's why the church has to be the place where Christ is central and he draws us together. Whether we're from Nigeria or from Korea or whether we find ourselves from Japan or China, wherever we might find ourselves from, he brings peace. He brings two people distinctively different in all kinds of ways, socioeconomically, different in gender, different in culture, and he brings them together. And the beauty of this piece is it doesn't start with you. <laughs> Praise God for that. It's found in him, and that's the job of Jesus. Because in Christ, the walls of division and hostility, they break down and unity breaks out. During the American Civil War, um, an author who you might be familiar with, Henry Wadsworth Longsbow, 
he had a son. His son's name is Charles. And uh, Wadsworth was out of town on business. And his son was wrestling with whether to join the Union forces. And uh, it was a struggle because Wadsworth had just lost his wife to a disease, took her quickly, and he was brokenhearted. But his son felt compelled to go off to the army. And he did. And he wrote his dad. He said, I've tried hard to resist the temptation of going without your leave, but I can't any longer. I feel it to be my first duty to do what I can for my country, and I would willingly lay down my life for it if it be of any good. Charles soon got an appointment as lieutenant. And in November, he was severely wounded in the Battle of New Hope Church in the Mine Run campaign. So coupled with the loss of his wife and the potential loss of his son, He's really introspective, and he, um, he's pleading out to God. And he pens a Christmas song. It's called Christmas Bells. I, I particularly like the third and fourth verse, <clears throat> he says. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then peal the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth. Good will to men. Wadsworth was trying to communicate that regardless of all the division, the struggle, the hostility he was in the middle of, that he had hope. Right? And the one hope was that hope that came on Christmas Day. Jesus. That, that he is our, our peace. Remember that. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, remember, there is only one source. He is our peace. And remember our partnership. Um, don't know if you like Mythbusters. Happens to be a, a fun show that I enjoy, and one of my sons really enjoys it because he loves explosions. Do you love, do you love the explosion part of it? Actually, they, they just finished. I don't know if you're familiar with that. They're local produced show, and they, they finished the show, and there's a highlight of all their greatest explosions. Now, that's all cool and stuff, but there was um, an even greater purpose for what happens here in the middle of Ephesians chapter 2. It's not just explosions without purpose or just trying to get better ratings or the oohs and ahs of a cool explosion. God worked in an explosive way to tear down the walls of hostility with purpose. And what's the purpose? It's this, he says, 19 and following. You are fellow citizens with the saints, with all the people that came before you, and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, all of us together, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, proclaiming the glory of God. That's you. That's your purpose. It's why he's done this. In him, 
you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. It's a fantastic metaphor that helps us understand that this happens not individually, but together. That he is our peace working in us and through us so that we might be a people of God. A people who know our place, once broken and separated and hostile and now brought near to him. That we would recognize and understand that we would remember deep in our souls that we have brought, been brought close to him, intimate with him. That he is now our peace. It's not a false or unsatisfying or temporary peace. It's a peace deep and eternal and working in us to break down all the race and gender and heritage stuff that divides us and draws us into oneness with him, true oneness. And that he has done this so that together in partnership, we would be a people of God, a holy temple that proclaims the presence and the glory of God together forever. For his glory, that's why we were created to be the church. That's who we are. Remember. Let me pray. Father, help us not forget how powerful it is what you have done, how strong this is. And this week, get it close to our brains and our hearts. This great work that you're in the middle of doing for your glory. When people see us, that they would see your great work, what you've done, that we would remember in every conversation and the actions that we're a part of, what you're about, that we live as expressions of your presence and for your glory. And all God's people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. For more information on Bridges Community Church, please check out our website at www.bridgescc.org.